Hello and welcome to Life of Brian, dot, 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 Manics, that is, the podcast thanks to Murcott's Driving Excellence. My name's Kevin Hillier and this man's name is, hang on, what's your name again? Um, uh, Steve Begley from AM Life Insurance or <laughs> Perth Wilson's from, um, um, I don't know, from Target. I'm not sure. Um, I'll go with Brian Manics today. Okay. But, uh, no, I will not see how that works. If you want to do it, if you're going to pick a movie character, like, uh, you know, name, which which movie character name would suit you? Would you be John McClane? Would you be, who would you be? I'd be Chief. I'd be Chief Brody. Chief Brody. <laughs> yeah. Martin Brody from uh, Jaws and, um, you know, I'd be able to say things like, we're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, we need to get a bigger podcast, Chiffy. Actually, I wouldn't mind being Mayor Vaughan so I could get to say that line, which is like, listen, now's not the time for you two to do some half-assed autopsy. <laughs> I, for one, am not going to stand around and see that little kitten boy spill out all over the dock. That's kind of, you know, those kind of things work for me, but, you know, you know, and, and I'm sure our listeners know too, kids, that I'm an idiot. So, um, you know, that's that. that there's no, yeah. there's no verification necessary for that. That just uh, that uh, that goes without saying. Hey, uh, great show coming up uh, this edition. Uh, thanks to uh, Mercot's Driving Excellence, and uh, they are the people you should see. You know, Christmas is not that far away, Brian. I know, and there's going to be a lot of people driving on the roads, going interstate, going to Marimbula, going to wherever they're going, and. Um, you know, I just want everybody to be safe, and I think the only way they can be safe, Kev, is to um, go to Murcotts. Exactly. Jump on the website, murcotts.edu.au, or you can grab a uh, last-minute Christmas gift there. They've got a, a terrific offer on at the moment. You'll see it on the website. Take advantage of it. It's a big saving, a big saving on uh, financially and a big saving life-wise, I reckon, if you do uh, one of their courses. So, uh, failing that, give them a buzz. Brian, that number? Well, the number is one three hundred triple five five seven six. Kev, correct. And um, you know, really, I think you would be neglect as a parent or as a friend if you didn't buy some driving excellence from Mercot just to because you care about people, just to make sure that they're gonna be safe. It's it's a time of the year where you show how much you care. This is this is a perfect opportunity to do that. So give them a buzz, one three hundred five 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 seven six or mercots.edu.au. Two great guests on this program. Later in the program, it's part one of the interview with John O'Hurley. Do we need anybody else or just you and me? No. Well, no, we do need we do need other people. <laughs> Trust me, we need other people. And we're in, when they're of the quality that we have on this show, we don't need anything else. John O'Hurley, who, of course, a great actor uh, and, and known to everyone as Peterman from the Seinfeld series. And people probably should know, uh, Kev, that I didn't help you with that interview because... You slept through the d- entire day, actually, not just the interview, the entire day. Well, I, I, I'd had a late night. I thought, I've got to get to sleep. And I and a friend of me gave me some Sarah packs, and I had a Sarah pack. Boom. And, and 
I didn't wake up till about three hours after the interview, and um, so I apologise for that. However, I don't think it will, it will affect the quality of the interview. It will probably be even better without that. <laughs> uh, he's, he's just a, just a lovely gentleman, uh, just a really nice fella, great sense of humour, and you'll hear all the Peterman stuff. There's actually a piece at the end of this first half of the interview where he does a, a Peterman uh, for me that wasn't on the show that was – well, it was on the show, but it finished up on the cutting room floor, not because it wasn't good. It was cut for time purposes, um, and it is hysterically funny, so hang out for that at the end. But our first guest is a music mm. is a musical guest, not that John O'Hurley's not a musical person because he is, um, but our first oh. guest is a man who back in the late 1960s, mid to late 1960s, was a member of Traffic, which was one of, wow, the biggest bands in, in England at the time. I was in traffic just this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, but you weren't singing Hole in My Shoe or Paper Sun, were you? Well, I was. I was humming along, but I made <laughs> no money. Unlike this bloke, he's just made a fortune out of not feeling too good himself. Well, Feeling All Right's the song that he wrote uh, when he was with Traffic that has has stood the test of time and, uh, and still to this day is whether you hear Joe Cocker's version whether you hear Dave Mason's version, who's the man who wrote it, who we're going to talk to, or you hear the other 50 or 60 versions of the song that's, uh, that are out there, it is just a great song. Well, you can just watch probably a lot of television commercials and hear it as well. And just to, can, just to clear things up, this isn't Dave Mason from The Real. Oh, God, no. No, this is <laughs> Dave from, from Traffic, who's you know, probably been living in luxury ever since he wrote... Um, Feeling all right, not yeah. feeling too good. Stuff. Yep. So we we catch up with Dave and uh, in uh, in his residence in America, where he lives these days and has for many many years. He opted out of England pretty early, but uh, we talk about some of the names that he brings up will stag you. We talk about his relationship with George Harrison, with with um, uh, Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones, with uh, an album he did with Cass Elliot. Uh, he played on all along the Watchtower for Jimi Hendrix. The man has an amazing, amazing. Uh, portfolio of work, so we're going to delve into that. So uh, thanks to our good friends at Murcotts. Brian, sit uh, back, one, relax. Three hundred triple five five seven six. I just want to say one thing, Kev. Mm-hmm. You know, Dave Mason decided to turn his back on England and move somewhere else. Yeah. And I think our listeners are going to really relate to that because we all <laughs> turned our back on England and moved out here. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, true. you know, this is... This is going to go down really well with everyone. <laughs> right. All right, John O'Hurley later on, but Dave Mason right now. Looking forward to it. I got an email this morning saying uh, with all these tour dates, you're about to embark on a massive tour. No, it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not massive, it's two and a half weeks. <laughs> well, in comparison to what's happened in the world for the last three years, that probably is massive, you know. Uh, well, well, let's put it this way. I've been touring since I was 16 and I'm 76 now, so it's a massive tour, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but you, you're fit and healthy and well and obviously uh, enjoying what you're doing still a, a thousand percent. Yeah, I love playing. Love playing. Love uh, not to uh, traveling, of course. Is, uh, that's what I get paid for. I get, I get paid for leaving the house and traveling. The music's free. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, let's let's talk about the, the music that you're doing now. What, what what when people go to your shows now? What do they get? A combination of everything from the 
from the not the Jaguars, I, I guess, but from the traffic days all the way through. Uh, pretty much the uh, the key stuff is in there, I guess. Feeling all right is my is my thanks for the memories. Only you know, and I know. But I do uh, I do some traffic stuff, but I um, have rearranged a couple of them, especially Low Spark, which I was not actually on that album, but I do a really um, I. Th- well, I think anyway, um, a pretty damn good blues version of it. So, can we talk about and, the traffic days just for a tick? And because it was a, it, 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 <laughs> <laughs> it was a funny situation, wasn't it? Because you kind of you were there when the band was created, and then you kind of slipped in and out of the band at different times, and songs appeared on albums when you weren't actually a member of the band, and and then you came back into the band. It was a really funny kind of relationship. Well, as Another interviewer said, he said, that was very crafty you slipped that in. The book will be out in May called Only You Know and I Know. Yes. And we'll detail how that all came down. But yes, I was there at the very beginning, first Traffic album. But I was young. But the first time, basically, I left because it was um, (laughs) the very thing that I got was a little all too much to handle for me. I'm not a country boy, but I'm very close to being the way I was brought up. So the uh, sudden, I guess, fame, for want of a better word, was just, it was a little much for me to handle. And so I left after the first album. The second time uh, is, is, as I said, that's in the book, <laughs> which is scheduled to come out in May. Um, on, um, and I think you can pre-order it through Amazon. Yep. And yep. that's the end of my commercial, okay? <laughs> uh, well, now it's a book that you didn't, uh, that you were kind of, uh, I guess not forced into writing, but it was a book that you were sort of, you weren't that keen to, to put everything down. Is that right? Uh, well, I'm basically a pretty private guy, so I got badgered into it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. The fans and the wife. So if we if we work on that premise, if we keep badgering you, you'll tell us everything we need to know. Well, I mean, well, it's possible. I, I I don't know you well enough yet to, <laughs> to get to that point. <laughs> Dave, can I ask you about Hole in My Shoe? Um, is that sure. you play, Is that play you playing sitar on the, the start of that? And it's probably one of the most psychedelic songs you can you can listen to. I'm just wondering what was what you were doing in the studio when you recorded that because it sounds like you're having a great time on that song. It sounds like, you know, the summer of love. It's, it really nails it. Um, can you just tell me a bit about that? Well, <laughs> first off, it's the, it's basically it's the first song I ever wrote. And, wow. it became, and it became Traffic's biggest hit. And it was, you know, it's basically a, it, it's, it's a dream nursery rhyme. It, it was, it's very much a studio record, though you could probably put it off live with today's technology. But at the time we did it, it was, it was pretty much a, just a studio record. It, it just took off in England. It, Engelbert Humperdinck kept me from number one. I'm really pissed about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be too. Um, not, t- tell me not the last waltz. I've, I don't know what song it was. I, I have no idea. I have to look it up. But yes, I mean, I played. Yes, I played sitar, and I. It's it's was, really good. It's really well played. And um, did you just you know work out how to play it, or did you have lessons, or 
because it's. I know I did it pretty much the same way I learned guitar. I just taught myself. Wow, because it's it's a difficult instrument to play, from what I can gather. It, it's super. Um, for start, I couldn't even sit in that position to play it at this point. <laughs> you'd have to do yoga from the time you'd start playing a sitar. You'd have to do yoga. So by the time you were eighty or ninety, you could still sit in that position and play it. <laughs> <laughs> but George Harrison gave me my actually gave me my first sitar, the one he kind of had learned on first off. Um, I mean, I was nine, I was twenty years of age. You know, just just about twenty, twenty one, and um, we, you know, we're back in the um, in the sixties and and with not the plethora of bands or entertainment or whatever is out there but now I'm, i think i'm going to call my next tour in the endangered species uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, i mean it was as you said a number two song in in england and it was a massive hit and and traffic's biggest hit and you mentioned that the fame was what kind of drove you out of traffic was what 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 happened in those those heady days i mean because we saw beatlemania and stuff but for, for bands like yourself that were coming through then, how, how was fame for you? Well, it was great. I mean, it was great. I mean, also, it was a very unique time in London around that period. Fashion, theatre, music, arts. It was very unique. And I, and I was there and I was close enough to it all. And, uh, yeah, it was, just a, it was just a great time. You mentioned George Harrison. Um, you, you recorded with George, is that right? I did. I played on some tracks on All Things Must Pass. Uh, if you ask me which ones, I, I uh, right now, off the top of my head, I can't remember. Uh, it, was so, <laughs> it was a fun recording session then, and we can't remember what we played on, but we had a good time doing it. Is that the gist? Well, there were a lot of people invited to those sessions. Yeah, so right. So, you know, um, and, from, and from that point of view, it was great. It was wonderful. And I had, had a number of just time spent with George. I mean, he was just a, he was just a sweet guy. Very yeah. nice. Dave, did, did uh, I mean, the amount of songs that you played on for other people, like Street Fighting Man for the Rolling Stones, and you played on um, McCartney stuff, uh, listen to what the man said and all that thing, and how does that happen? Are you just are you just wandering around studios, or what? 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 Do, do, do you get a phone call from the Stones to say we're doing this thing? Will you come in and play, or are you just there? How do those things happen? Well. You know, the first Traffic album was cut on four-track at Olympic. <laughs> and that's all that was available in London. I think there was – I don't know exactly how many other studios EMI had one, which is, would be Abbey Road. Pi, which was an electronics company. Uh, but otherwise, there was maybe Morgan and Olympic. And maybe a couple of others. Joe Meek had a studio. So there were very few studios and there were – and it was a very tight, you know, knit circle. I mean, everybody, it's it's a very, America, you know, there were a, a lot of musical places, San Francisco, New York, Atlanta, Nashville, New Orleans, um, Philadelphia, Chicago. Um, there were a number of places early on here where the music was being made. In, in England, everybody finished up in London. Yeah. Everybody. So you invariably could not help but run 
<laughs> I mean, Olympic is, and Jimmy Miller was brought over to produce Traffic, who finished up doing the Rolling Stones at Olympic with Eddie Kramer, who was the same engineer that did Traffic, so da 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 And it was just not unusual. <laughs> it wasn't unusual anyway for people to drop by each other's sessions. Yeah. And part of it was, was I, I, I spent a good, uh, some, a deal of time with Brian Jones. Wow. So that was the other part that fin- me finished up being there uh, just at Olympic. I just, you know, stopped by and <laughs> came over. I think I went there with Brian and they were cutting street fighting man. So it's like, Hey Dave, grab a hold of this and come on. Sis. <laughs> what was yeah. Brian Jones like as a guy? Brian Jones musically was brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's a shame that he, you know, that, that he let himself go so much, but that yeah. was his band. But that's he put that band together. And musically, he was the most. I mean, Brian could you could give Brian an instrument and leave him alone for about an hour, and he and he'd be playing it yeah. if he'd never seen it. Yeah. So was the was the the I mean was it suffocating in England? Is that why you went to America? Well, that that's all about the last part of the uh, the final ending of traffic for me. Yeah. And the basic reason I came to America is because this is where it all come all the music comes from. I mean, all we all we did in England is just learn from all the American things and turn you back onto your own music. Mm. Basically, I mean, without unless it's Appalachian music, which has its roots in your in in Europe, deep in Europe. Everything else is American. It's all American music, you know, uh, rhythmically black influenced. Jazz is a very unique form of music that's truly American. Mm. And, and so I, that's part of the reason I came here. I wanted to come to the source. Before you went to America, though, you wrote a, a little song called Feeling All Right. I believe you wrote it when you were in Greece? I did, on the island of Hydra. Yeah. Two stories I've seen. One is that it's it's written about a girl that you've never mentioned who it was about. Another one was that it was written about how you were feeling about traffic at the time. It's probably a combination of both. And besides that, you know, the song is the song. It, the song isn't about feeling all right. <laughs> yes, it's about not feeling too good myself. I mean, the it's a question. The, the original title is a question mark after it, but. You know, everything's open to interpretation, and thank God Joe Cocker got a hold of it. <laughs> because after that, there are 50 other major artists that have done it. So, I think and, Eagle Humperdinck kept Joe Cocker's version of from number one. Though. <laughs> it probably <laughs> How did Joe Cocker get it? Was that just one of those happenstance things, or, or did, you, did you want well, him to record it? It was a very tight, a very unique, very tight situation in London, socially. And uh, along with that, Chris Blackman and Denny Cordell were good friends. And I guess Denny picked up on the song. And, and uh, thank God, Chris, I think, is it, I, think, I think it's Chris Stanton. Yeah, the piano player, yeah. I, I mean, they should have given Chris some royalties off that because that, the, the hook is as important as the damn song. Frankly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, of the fifty odd cover versions, are you fond? Yes. Uh, and I know they all help your bank balance, but are you fond of them all? I probably haven't heard all fifty. Be honest yeah. with you, uh, Jimi Hendrix. You did something yeah. with Jimi. Is that right? 
Yes, I certainly did. Wow. What, what did you do with Jimmy? Well, I'm playing the acoustic guitar now along the Watchtower. Whoa. I bet you did. And I'm singing on Crosstown Traffic and uh, playing bass and sitar on some tracks that I have no idea what happened to. <laughs> wow. What was Jimmy like? Was he a good guy? Um, okay, well, well, I'll take that pause as an answer. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, someone like him, it's hard to define someone like that. There's a lot of great guitar players out there. Great guitar players. Joe Bonamassa is one of my favorites. But yep. there are, but there are no more Jimi Hendrixes. I mean, he was just very innovative. Yeah, he did a lot of things in the studio. Very innovative, and done all the blues stuff and the rest of it. So, and I, he was actually very quiet. A very quiet guy off stage. Very soft spoken. So, are you still writing songs now? Uh, occasionally. Yeah. When inspiration hits. Well, <laughs> the motivation and, and, the, and the whole thing is not the same as it was. I mean, there's, you know, I do it mostly just for, for, for myself. Yeah. For, yeah. I, which I do anyway, making the music. But the point about it was, you know, there was a um, intellectual property has gotten a little destroyed, okay? Yeah, yeah. I think if you get a million hits on uh, Spotify, you get a thousand dollars, which is not very yes. good. It's outrageous. Yes, but, yeah. Uh, you know, so if you're just a, sing a songwriter, you're screwed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It used to be good. You used to be able to make some some really good money out of it. But uh, these days, everybody seems to think that uh, music is their God-given right, and they get it for nothing. Yeah, um, exactly. It's been, my 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 dad owned a sweet candy store for forty-eight years. Uh -huh. It was the worst business he ever got into because everybody was selling candy. And that's what's happened to music, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good uh, a really good comparison. So what gives you the most joy? Has it, always been, has it always been playing live, Dave? Well, I love playing live. It's just great. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I'm essentially a guitar player. I mean, that's what I, was my love. Hank Marvin, that was my whole inspiration for everything. And then, you know, you got to, well, you better learn to sing because otherwise you're not in, you better learn to sing the new hits because otherwise you're going to get a gig. <laughs> you don't get hooked at the local pub or wherever it was. So, you know, they just became pieces as it went along, but mostly it's all, it was all about, it's all about the guitar for me. Yeah. As a, as a reluctant singer, how do you feel when you're in a studio with someone like Cass Elliott? Com I mean, comfortable. Uh, from the point of view that Cass and I became just really good friends because it was somebody that I got to know when I first moved to America. Yeah. And basically that was because there were some people and they were actually living at her house that I were very good friends with from England. So it was a sort of sanctuary and that's how I got to know Cass and, and, and singing wise, style wise, it, it it's so apt, you know, it's so divergent that, if you'd have asked me how did I feel if I was doing something with Marvin Gaye, that would be, be a whole different yeah. story. Uh, I mean, she's another one of those really sad, tragic stories of, of someone who, uh, I mean, uh, her voice makes me melt. I, I just, I think she has the most beautiful female voice I think I've ever oh, yeah. heard in my life. Yeah. Great voice, great voice. And a wicked sense of humour. Yeah. yeah, 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 you could see that. 
Oh, yeah, she was great. Would you ever look at, um, is there any possibility ever that you could get that little Zoom band you put together during quarantine uh, that, <laughs> uh, 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 and get them on the road? Because by Jesus, that was something else, that version of feeling all right. It, was, it, it came, I mean, considering we were all in different parts of the planet, it was, it, 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 it came out as if we were, were together. So, um, no, I doubt it. It's a one time. Yeah, but Jesus, it was good. Fleetwood, um, Sammy Hagar, yourself, and the and the th- four four members. The four members or three members of the Doobie Brothers. Three members of the Doobie Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Michael, uh, Tom Johnson, and and uh, Michael, Sammy Hagar, Mick Fleetwood, me, and the Doobie Brothers. Yeah. yeah. It's a great version. Yeah, that's that. That song is, is is seemingly an easy song. Every band you see does a version of "Feeling All Right." It's an anthem. It's a, a two chord song. Yeah, so you can't. It's so hard to screw it up. <laughs> that's probably why so many bands play it because it's two chords. <laughs> it's easy to play. It's just two chords. That's all it is. Ah, <laughs> uh, the best things are simple. Have you heard it done by someone when you've been in, out and about and, and gone, hang on, that's my song that they're murdering over there? <laughs> yeah, bar bands and stuff when I'm out on the road. Yeah. Go ahead, rock on, man. Yeah, I've heard you describe it as you, uh, and you mentioned it before, you, as your Bob Hope song. Thanks for the memory. Yeah. <laughs> but was, at the same time, I don't think a lot of people are aware that I wrote it. Well, they will be after this podcast, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Well, you go, boys. Okay, <laughs> spread the word. Is it still a thrill for you to play it live when you when you do it? Do you still think you know really fondly of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. I mean, there's so many ways. I mean, the great part about it is I could I could get up, you know, on the next tour and get up and do it with a reggae group. <laughs> I mean, I, it 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 molds itself to you know. A number of things. The cover versions I've seen, Bad Finger, I, I saw, did a cover version of it. Um, I think Dinah Ross and the Jackson 5. Yeah, yeah Michael Jackson did it. Yeah, my, it's just, I mean, the amount of people who've done cover versions of it, as we mentioned, 50 or so, but all really different. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to have heard Ray Charles do it. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been my, on my bucket. That would have been my bucket list wish list. Now, your book, which you mentioned is out in May, is not a tell-all book. It's more a – is it more a chronicle of what of what you, you've done over the years? And I know you've got a co-author who um, who sort of helped you kind of piece it all yes, together. Chris Epting, uh, who did a lot of the research because when it comes to times, places and dates, I'm, you know, forget it. Uh, you're talking – I wouldn't know. So he was great with that. And some of the – with the re, a lot of the research – um, uh, actually, he did the last the Doobie Brothers book. Oh, okay. Yeah, and a few others. I can't off the top of my head remember what they are, but he'd done uh, a number of books already. But yeah, he was great for research, especially as I said for uh, for times and places. Yeah, and things. And he's unearthed, started to unearth pictures and photos that are. Oh shit! Is that me? <laughs> <laughs> Did you remember things and and uh, places and events and look at photos and stuff and go, oh shit! I don't actually well, remember you, that. What you do when you see a picture? Yeah. You know. Was the process of writing the book something that you said you're a fairly private person? So was writing the book a, a pleasant process, or was it just a pain in the ass, or how did you, how did you feel when you 
yeah. all of that and more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, part of it is actually kind of interesting, you know, just because unless I'm doing an interview, i.e. like this, I don't really dwell on the past at all. Yeah. So um, sometimes it's, it, it's, it's fun to go back over it. And sometimes it's like, well, whoo, <laughs> you know, you scare yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 2004, what, what, what did that, um, how did that sit in the, the sort of pantheon uh, of your achievements? Well, that's another one that you should wait for the book for. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, the, the anticipation for the book is building and building. It's building and building and building. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. <laughs> the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame could have been – a really unique opportunity to maybe, you know, do a last hurrah, and it didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, which I'd have been more than open to. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, you know, uh, Traffic was a unique little band. Probably one of the, I think looking, looking back at it now and looking back, we were sort of one of the, you know, original alternate bands, basically. Um, because there were so many diverse musical things going on, which pulled it apart in the end. Yeah. But, you know, which I, from my point of view, I think the differences, as somebody once said, differences combine to form beauty. So, you know, mm. the yin and the yang, the pull and the tug, push, you know, it's, but it never worked out. But it's in the book. <laughs> Well, it's all in the book, apparently. So we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll read the book and then we'll get back onto you again and start to have a, uh, have a get you to drink the truth serum and see what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when am I going to come down there and play? For some well, have music? you ever actually been here? Never. How did that happen? Oh. Well, I I I need you boys to talk to one of your promoters down there and see what they can do about getting Dave to come down there. I, it, I was trying to find a, a tour by traffic or by someone that you're involved with at some stage, but I couldn't find anything. So you never have actually been here. That's quite a, it's quite astonishing. I know, and it's, it's getting later. I'm, it's, I'm getting older. I need to – I'm in the fourth quarter here. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, I think all three people in this, uh, in this podcast are in the fourth quarter. <laughs> I'd, lo- I'd love to come down there. It would be, be very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's um, well. I want to bring the band. I want yeah. to get down. You know, and the and the band that you have. I mean, you have. Uh, uh, there's someone in your band who's been with you for 40 years. Yeah, pretty close. John Sambatero, Johnny Sambatero. Yeah, he's a great, great, sing great harmonies, great guitar. And yep. if you need, if you need a little spackling or a little uh, new sync put in, he's good at that. Too. Oh, okay, that's handy. <laughs> Hey, Dave, it's been an absolute treat to have a chat to you. We look forward to the book in May. Well, thank you. Thank you, and uh, thanks for doing this. Oh, thank uh, you. And are you feeling all right? Absolutely. I'm not feeling too good myself. (laughs) Oh, that's too bad. (laughs) It's only too good, Dave. We can't stuff it up, remember? (laughs) (laughs) Thank thank you. Thank you. Good health to you, mate. You too.
There you go. That's that's a version uh, that was done during lockdown of uh, Feeling Alright, which we talked about during the interview there with uh, members of the Doobie Brothers and uh, Mick Fleetwood playing drums and and Dave singing there with a whole host of other people. That is just just a great song, a great song. It's terrific, but I'm really excited about what's coming up next. Yes. There were so many great lines from Seinfeld um, that I love. And one of my favourites, it's not – our next guest, but um, Seinfeld goes to pick up a car and he goes, I've booked the uh, 350 Subaru or whatever it is. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have that car. He goes, but I made a reservation. And she goes, yes, sir, I know you made a reservation. I know what a reservation is. And he <laughs> says, and he says, no, I don't think you do. <laughs> you know how to take a reservation, but you don't know what it is. <laughs> and I I find myself saying that now. <laughs> I don't think you do all the time now. And <laughs> yes. I this other one from Seinfeld the other night, like there was a girl in the nude and she started coughing while she was in the nude and he says, and he goes, coughing in the nude? It's a turn-off, man. <laughs> yeah, like Peter Fonda and Easy Rod, I yeah. just laugh it off. But J.P. Peterman has got some of the greatest lines ever, ever said in Seinfeld. And um, and it's a really, it's a character that, you know, if you couldn't act it right, this could have been a disaster. But oh, he yeah. just delivers it beautifully because a lot of the lines are really over the top and kind of silly, but... The oh, way yeah. he did it, it just seems like perfect sense. He's a, he's a wonderful actor. So um, let's see what he has to say. Yeah, let's talk to John O'Hurley, uh, who played Peterman in Seinfeld. And this is uh, part one. We'll bring you part two in a, in a future episode. But uh, the magnificent John O'Hurley. Hang on a sec, Kev. 
I was walking through the Sahara with my <laughs> one stone boot uh, and my my urban sombrero. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go for it. What is busying your times at the moment? Uh, well, I have a, you know, kind of a very eclectic life. I live by my imagination. So whatever my imagination tells me to do, I do. It leads me in a lot of different directions uh, in entertainment and outside entertainment. Um, I, I still continue to, uh, to work um, uh, as an actor. Uh, I'm doing a lot of different things. Uh, we have a show called NCIS uh, LA. But I'm doing uh, an episode of that, which I uh, just finished. Um, but I continue on Broadway with the, I have a show, uh, Chicago, the musical, which I've been doing for 15 years as, uh, as uh, the um, uh, slick lawyer, Billy Flynn. Uh, I've been doing that for over 2,000 performances. I did... Uh, the uh, starring role in Spamalot, the Monty Python musical there, uh, King Arthur, uh, for many, many, many years, but ten, but quite, a, well, quite a few, uh, quite a few, about ten years, um, and I continue to uh, to stay busy. I wrote a one-man musical, believe it or not, a solo show called uh, A Man with Standards, and uh, it's uh, kind of a uh, autobiographical show, if you will, uh, about my crazy life growing up in the in entertainment and uh, I use the music of the uh, 50s and 60s the great American songbook yeah. we call it, uh, to uh, to kind of you I use the music really to underscore the stories of my life so it's been very successful and I I tour around the states doing that would love to come down to uh, Melbourne or Sydney to uh, to do it down there if I can find an appropriate spot would be perfect. We would uh, we would love you. You have you have an enormous fan base here in Australia. Obviously based on the on the Peterman character from Seinfeld. What was your what was your first acting role, John? Gosh, um, well, professionally, the first one I did was uh, I was lucky enough to get a show forty eight hours after I arrived in New York. It was the worst musical ever done on Broadway, uh, and uh, I had the second lead in it. It was a it was just a terrible musical. Uh, it was three hours long. Uh, uh, it was a medieval uh, love story. It didn't have a single laugh in it, but uh, <laughs> uh, and it and it it it, it had closed quite uh, quite beneficently in uh, six weeks. And uh, so, but it, it did everything I needed. It got me an agent. It got me into the union for the actors and. Uh, uh, so you know, it was a it was a good uh, you know it was a good time for me. Uh, but uh, that was my first show, my first show on television. I guess I'd have to go back and and say, uh, The Edge of Night, which was a an American soap opera, a very popular one for oh more than forty years. I yeah. I was on that was probably my first real television show that I did, um, and uh, I killed that show, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then, uh, and then I, I became Mr. Soap Opera after that for many, many years. I was the first, I was actually the first twin brothers on daytime television, if you can imagine that uh, anything more insufferable than that. But, uh, uh, was I, I, was I it the classic good twin, bad twin routine? Oh, of course it was, <laughs> yeah, and not yeah. only that, they were twin brothers, and 
Uh, not and and I don't even know that if I remember correctly, I don't know that they were twins. I think they were brothers. I think they were they hadn't even gotten to the how secretive that could be if they were twin brothers. But uh, they were brothers, and I made one taller than the other. So obviously, I removed my shoes for one of the performances because I was such a skilled actor back then. I knew that the only way to distinguish them was by height. Um, but it was very funny. I mean, I had fist fights with my Myself. I did everything you possibly could do. But I, you know, I, I spent, um, oh, a good 10 years on daytime television, uh, soaps, we call them, yeah. but uh, doing everything. I, I was, um, I was uh, on the number one show, the uh, show called The Young and the Restless. Oh, yeah, it's made massive it there as well. Yeah, no, massive. Well, I was, uh, I was Dr. James Granger, the young heroic cardiac surgeon on Young and the Restless for uh, many years. And, um, uh, and, and I had young heroic cardiac surgeon hair as well. <laughs> you still um, do. <laughs> I, well, it seems to be still, but some of it's real actually. And <laughs> and the truth was, as long as you were under the care of Dr. Granger, you were you were going to be okay. Well, truth be known, I never kept one patient alive in the three or four years. I've, everybody went home in a body bag. Everybody, I'm, you know, and I don't know, the, and I'm not sure that the writers ever kept uh, kept track of what was going on there. But sure enough, everybody went home uh, copus mortis, and uh, in fact, to the point where the actors would, you know, if they were getting close to my storyline, they would call their agent and say, "What's going on here? It's like it doesn't doesn't sound good for me. I'm with O'Hurley and his storyline." <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't, and it really it was short. A short time after that, in the early '90s, that I began to move into nighttime television, uh, prime time, and what have you, and into movies of the week, and uh, and, and into, uh, and believe it or not, even into comedy. People never thought I could be funny, so they never cast me in comedy. And now <laughs> it's tough for me to find a drama. Yeah, yeah. Well, was it? Is, is it a hard road to to hoe to get? To get those breaks, and do you have to take what the little crumbs that you're offered, uh, rather than have your kind of you no. know high moral ground? I'm I'm an actor, and I'll I'll only do proper parts, and I won't do soaps and all that sort of stuff. It's a it's an interesting question. I think you know ultimately, um, I think the rent, you know, probably wins out in the end. To be honest with you, I find today's climate of show business, if you will, or business show, which I think it is more that, uh, is more difficult than it's ever been. Because back then there were a lot of shows, but only three networks, and you had much more access to um, to entertainment than you do today. Um, you know, I, I could literally go three years and not see my agent. You know, it's just so distant and disconnected now today. It used to be that, you know, you, you could walk into your agent's office and sit down and say, hey, how are you? What's going on? That doesn't, uh, it's, it's not the environment anymore. You're, you're separated um, by security guards and, and secretaries and what have you, yeah. Yeah. You're what is classically a song and dance man, uh, an all-rounder, you, you, you do everything. Was that, a, was that a good thing for you in the early days of your career or what, was that something you had to do to pay the rent? It's a, it's a good question, but I'll just tell you, and, and I will go back economically because I do think that way. Um, if 30 things pass through an agent's office, uh, 26 of them are musicals. Um, and, and in New York, anyway, in the early years, 
so singing was, but it's also something I started with. Uh, you know, my minor in college was in opera, and uh, and I certainly have done several. But I and I continue to, as I say, to do my uh, one man show, which involves a lot of singing. But uh, it's just one of those, you know, it's one of the um, one of the arrows in the quiver. Let me put it that way. And yeah. as long as you've got it, um, you can use it. And if you don't have it, well, you're going to be a step behind those that do. Um, it's not that you won't be successful or couldn't be successful, but it just it 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 it, it pays off to, you know, bring as much as you can to the table because you're here to to perform and whether it's uh, on stage and musicals or or um, in front of a camera uh, or in front of the in front of the movie camera or um, you're, you're there to you're there to work yeah so which gives you the most pleasure well you know i i, I go back to, i love doing broadway and here's why if i'm in new york at 7.30 at night, we have the half-hour call where you have to be there. At 8 o'clock, when the curtain goes up and the conductor's baton drops and the orchestra begins and I'm on stage, and I know something that the audience doesn't know, and that is that in two and a half hours, they're going to be standing on their feet, applauding and screaming and having had the time of their lives. Now... That's an enormous, it's, it, it's just an enormous high to know that at the end of the day. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have that, that the people actually don't stand up at the end of your broadcast day and say, <laughs> yes, and, and, and just are screaming. But, you, you, I mean, you tell me. You'd be, you you'd be me. right, though, John, if you, if you had that <laughs> assumption. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's, it's a wonderful, it's an enormously uh, uplifting thing to know that, that you you're working with music and and lyrics and uh, uh, a script that are, are so popular that it just induces people to rise to their feet. And fifteen or twenty minutes later, I'm sitting in my favorite restaurant in um, uh, in New York and having my dinner. So it's a wonderful way to live. So when you ask me what is my favorite venue. I would say Broadway, yeah. but uh, if, uh, followed closely behind by, uh, I, I've really enjoyed my time as a game show host for many years. I've done, I don't know if the show uh, Family Feud uh, plays down there. Yep. I did that for about five years here. Uh, I also did a wonderful show, and I think it was probably my favorite of all of them, called To Tell the Truth, uh, which uh, is the game show that has the time-honored phrase, will the real so-and-so please stand up? You know, it was kind of like a Google search, you know, <laughs> you know, back in, uh, back in the day. And uh, it was uh, a wonderful show with a comedy panel and uh, we just had wonderful times, great memories, great people. And I think of, of, that, of that genre of television, that was, uh, that was my favourite. The National Dog Show that you did is, a, is obviously a massive show over there as well. Isn't it? It surprised and, and surprises nobody more than me. Uh, in 2002, uh, I, the head of NBC Sports came to me, uh, called me when I was in L.A. one morning. The, I answered the phone and he said, woof, woof. And that was the beginning <laughs> of what is now a 21 year uh, lineage of the National Dog Show uh, presented on our, our Thanksgiving Day. Which is a huge, you know, family event here. You know, families get together 
you know, traditionally every Thanksgiving. And, and it, you know, it's just a different kind of a day. So because it appeals to so many people, the dog show is the perfect programming uh, slip in that we did from noon until uh, two o'clock. Um, right before our football games begin and right after the famous Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade ends. So for 21 years, this has become the most important thing uh, as a holiday tradition. And uh, my co-host David Fry and I host the National Dog Show. But we get an audience of uh, 30 plus million people uh, watching the National Dog Show. Now, I will say, uh, it gives me a chance to say some of the stupidest things I've ever said on television. <laughs> I, I, I'll, 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 tell, I'll tell you a very funny uh, a story, and it's all true. They brought the old English sheepdog up to the judge the first year, and if you don't know what an old English sheepdog is, it's uh, 80 pounds of hair and two pounds of actual dog. <laughs> and so the, 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 the woman judge, the female judge, elegantly gowned, walks around to the back of the stall, of the dog and starts picking through all of the hair. And I said to my co-host, uh, David, uh, I said, David, can you tell us what she's doing? He's she's putting her hands on the dog to make sure that the shoulders and the uh, hips align with the specification, the written specification of what the perfect old English sheepdog should be. He said, because you can hide a really bad dog with a really good haircut. I said, you're telling me I went to junior prom. So she walks around to the front of the dog and she starts picking through all of the hair on the dog's head. And I said, David, what is she doing now? He says, David or John, he's, he's, he's trying to find the eyes. I said, really? I said, she says, yes, to gauge the attentiveness of the dog. I said, really? Well, if she picks through all of that hair and she finds only one eye, she's got the wrong end of the dog. <laughs> So that was my that was my contribution to the world of uh, of dog shows my first year. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully done, and been struggling for the twenty one years since to top that line. I would have thought. <laughs> I've had some good ones since then. I'll tell you. Yeah. The least of which is the Pekingese, which is this big fur ball. And I said one year, I said, you know, you could be walking this dog backwards for two years and not know it. <laughs> Dancing with the okay. Stars is a show that you did that was shrouded in controversy. I did. I won the first year eventually. <laughs> um yeah, uh, and I guess you have you must have the show down there. Yeah, it was introduced to me as a British uh, show called uh, Strictly Come Dancing, Ew. and uh, so I did the first year. Um, uh, and 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 getting me to do it was a they had to take me out to lunch one day and say, look, we want you show me the show. And I said, all right, well, it's a it's a beautiful show. It's lovely. It's uh, looks like it's going to be a success. I'll be happy to host it. They said, no, we want you to do it. I said, no, I'll host it. They said, no, we want you to do it. And I said, oh. so finally, because my imagination is the thing that tells me what to do and what not to do, I said, OK, I'll do it. Who else have you got? They said, you're the first one we've asked. <laughs> they said, but they said, because we have you, now we know we can get a Vander Holyfield. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> what? <laughs> and I, then it hit me. Then I said, well, I realize what, what ABC television is doing is they're taking this 
midsummer replacement series called Dancing with the Stars and, and using it to give America what they've been hoping for for more than 20 years. And that is the Evander Holyfield John O'Hurley matchup on the <laughs> level playing field, finally, of ballroom dancing. <laughs> and since you weren't aware of it at the time, I, I took the champ out in the third round with my foxtrot. <laughs> Goodness me! Now, what happened with it? it they did. The, you got to the finals, and there well, was there was had, some sort of thing you know, that it was had, is rigged. Well, I, uh, rigged? No, rigged means they've done it intentionally. Right. Um, uh, this was an accident that they couldn't stop, and they knew it was happening. And it was something that revealed itself. And it was also the first year of the show. But they had uh, they had somebody on the show who was from General Hospital, who was a uh, a, soap star, a, a, a woman, female actress who was on General Hospital. Well, part of the voting of the show was online. And you could vote all week online. But in order to get online, you had to have a password and a identification on, you know, abc.com. Well, nobody who was going to vote for any of the rest of us was on abc.com. So she was getting votes all week and she had a huge fan base. So she was always winning the, um, the, you know, the popular vote. Well, none of us really had a chance. And, and, and it isn't, I, I won't fault ABC on that because I don't think they saw it coming. I think it was just one of the ways that they felt that they could it, you know, have an interaction of live voting because this was one of the first shows that used that. And so lo and behold, um, I, I wouldn't say she was the greatest dancer on the show, but when they had the, she always won the popular vote. So she just kept moving along every week. And finally it was her and I, and we were in the finals and she fell three times in her final dance, but they had to give her three tens because she had won the popular vote. Oh, so it was, it caused an incredible, I mean, like 50, 40, 50,000 complaints on it shut the, it shut the internet down. Uh, back when you could shut an internet down. And so, you know, I didn't, I, I mean, truthfully, it was like, it was, you know, kind of upsetting to put all that work into it and find that you've been kind of bamboozled a bit. But, um, but they ended up in, in, because they had such a success to the series, you know, uh, 37 million people, I think, watched the finale. But they, they had to have a, yeah, what we call a dance-off, you know, a two-hour dance-off with she and I. And they made a whole night of it, and, and um, I eventually won that. So I ended up winning the first year, so all was right with the world and morality <laughs> and truth and justice and, and the American way. So um, all was repaired, I guess. But, uh, but regardless, it was, a fun, it was a brilliant show, and... I regard it, I have such high regard for the show, and I hope that it is, you know, it's unfortunately gone, it's had its run a little bit, so now it's on kind of a download network on ABC. But, or Disney, I think, Disney Plus, I think. Uh, so, it's a, it's a kind of a, you know, when they when shows go to die, that's where they go. And so I think it, the show the show may have run its course, but it's it's had an enormous run over, gosh, 15, more than fifteen years, and uh, I've had a wonderful time. But I still go back. I use it as a fundraising tool, but um, I'm hoping that it's blessed with you know blessed with permanence in some fashion because it's the kind of show that we, it's the kind of reality show that we should be encouraging where people are 
trying something and trying to be better than they were mm. as opposed to, you know, becoming the story, if you know what I mean, the yep. Kardashian way, you know, it, you know, taking the worst parts of yourself and, and making a gossip show out of it. Uh, I, I don't think that's what reality show should reality television should be. I think it should be uplifting and, and watching somebody be a champion. And, yep. uh, you know, the show's The Voice and, and um, America's Got Talent and what have you. These are wonderful shows. They're supporting talent, and I think that's what we should be doing. Would you have gone on a show like that if there'd been one around in your day? Well, I, I was actually, you know, it, both of them, America's Got Talent was, uh, you know, the show I was supposed to be hosting, but uh, Regis Philbin uh, was able to hop in there instead. Uh, I, you know, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I like the show a lot. Absolutely. Would I? Sure. Absolutely. And, and even, you know, the show uh, The Voice was actually a concoction of mine. Uh, you know how ideas get stolen. I, I came to them with a show called Voce, which is uh, Italian for the voice. And um, uh, when it was about, uh, it was more about legitimate singers, operatic. And it was always about never being able to see the talent the first time, having your, your, um, your chair turned. And lo and behold, Huh. A show comes on, and that's what it's called. It's called The Voice, and that's exactly what happens. And uh, so, anyway, that's how things happen. Oh, uh, well. Okay. Let's yeah. talk about Peterman. Can we talk about him for a little while? Sure. He's a good man. Uh, well, it obviously been a very good man for you in many ways, both during the series and, and, and post the series, as, as it turns out, which I want to talk to you about as well. But you originally said no. Yeah, can you believe that? I had had a series. I had had a series on ABC, a sitcom comedy called "A Whole New Ball Game." It was cancelled on a Tuesday morning. They said basically, "Don't bother coming to work. We pulled the plug on the show." That's the way networks do it. And so I went out to dinner that night um, with my manager, crying in my beer, trying to take the cancellation as personally as I possibly could, (laughs) and. while we were there at dinner, my uh, the phone rang, and it was um, Larry David's office, casting office, had called and said that um, they had this guest star on Seinfeld that I want to do it the next day. I said, and, and so I just turned to him, um, and I said, just tell them no. I said, I'm still licking my wounds off this thing. I don't want to go guest star on somebody else's show. Mm. Truth be known, he never called. And the next morning, he called me and said, get your ass out of bed, and they're waiting for you over at uh, the show. All I can say is that if I had uh, not done that, I would have disappeared into a cultural vacuum. So you turn up on set to what? 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 When you do get there and you you kind of you, – you would have still, I well, guess. Well, they handed me – they handed me a copy. They had – you know, it was the most disorganized show on television. Uh-huh. Um Oh, my goodness. The scripts were always only half written, you know, three quarters written, whatever. You, you only got the pages you got. So I went over there for the, uh, the, the uh, script read through for the first time. And only about half the script was written. There was a couple of scenes that were Peterman scenes, but they handed me the J. Peterman catalog. And they said, we just want him to sound the way the catalog is written. Now, most people didn't know what the J. Peterman catalog was. It was the craziest thing you've ever seen. If you go to J. Peterman 
com, you'll see the cat the uh, the catalog that we parodied back then. It sounds like a Hemingway novel <laughs> trying to sell an Oxford button-down shirt with a price size and an available. Everything has this adventure story. It sounds like yeah, I mean, it sounds like. Uh, you know this this uh, wonderful piece of prose that you're coming into uh, you know halfway through you know so it's it's it'll start off with of course i told her to sit she was too beautiful otherwise you know so <laughs> and uh, she's wearing obviously some blouse or some skirt that was uh, appropriately uh, peterman but uh, so anyway, we, we, here's the funny thing is that I read through, you know, we did the, we did the, um, the reading of the script as it was aloud with the, the network and everybody else there. I promptly got up at the end, called my manager and I go, this is the number one show on television. I said, it's not funny. <laughs> I said, I just got, I said, I just got a, a sitcom that was really funny, just killed about two days ago. What the hell is this? So. What I realized was a brand new style of comedy, and that was this, is that you didn't play for the laughs. You didn't play for the jokes. You pretended there weren't any jokes. You played the scene like a drama. And then the show became funny because of the intensity of the way you played it. And it was a new style of comedy for me, and I think a new style of comedy for television. You didn't have a a joke that you were setting up for the punchline and bang, deliver. You know, it wasn't that, it wasn't that. And yet every other sitcom was like that, that, you know, you knew there was a joke coming, joke coming, joke coming, and there it is, you know? Um, so it was a brand new style of comedy. And it, it took me a while to learn how to play the intensity of the character. And Peterman got funnier the more intensely he believed who he was, that he was this, you know, white poet warlord standing on the cliff, shaking his fist, you know, the, uh, uh, but, uh, and, and the writers responded to it. They, you know, they started writing these long, ponderous monologues that Peterman would deliver. Sadly, many of them were cut, um, but um, it doesn't mean that they still don't live in infamy. <laughs> when you get that opportunity to be that sort of lunatic that that you're allowed to be with Peterman, is is, is the chain off? Do they just say, "We know you've got it nailed in your?" You head. know, they they really did. Um, the more I had fun with it, and the more I became kind of this classically elegantly trained Shakespearean actor performing this sitcom, the better it was and the more they enjoyed it and the more that they wrote for it because they were writing long form. Now, I'll give you an example. There was a, um, a wonderful show when Rob Schneider, the oh, comedian, yes. was, playing my, was playing my hard of hearing assistant. And I mistakenly thought that he and Elaine were having a little office romance. And so I decided I was going to play Cupid. And I walked into her office late one afternoon and I slapped down two tickets to the Karamazov Brothers Circus and I tell her that she and Bob can knock off a little early to get ready. And she looks at me as though I had grown a second head and she said, Bob? And I said, Elaine, don't worry. I, too, am no stranger to love on the clock. As a young lad, my father apprenticed me to a honey factory in Belize. The chief beekeeper was this horrible hag of a woman with gnarled teeth and a giant wart that she called a nose. Oh, she was not attractive. 
even by backward standards. But love is truly blind, Elaine, and as the days went on, working closer and closer together, that sweet smell of honey in the air, I knew I had to have that horrible creature. And I did. So you and Bob have a good time tonight. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the brilliance of the writing on that show. And, uh, you know, as you say, how do you remember, remember that? How do you remember that all these years? I go, how could you forget it? It was just, um, you know, just brilliant writing. Oh, and, and, and they had so much fun, you know, with with that stuff. As I say, sadly, a lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor. But uh, every week there was a Peterman monologue. But because we were too long, that was the easiest thing to quickly cut. All right, that's uh, John O'Hurley. That's part one. And as you heard there at the end, some beautiful uh, classic Peterman there that finished on the cutting room floor. We'll delve more into the whole Seinfeld uh, uh, sort of genre for him and how he got the part and what happened and, you know, when he first went on set, all those things coming up in, in part two, which you'll hear in a future Life of Brian uh, podcast. But we want to talk about the fact that we've got a special Christmas edition coming up, Brian. We love our Christmas editions, Kevin. We get we get a whole host of guests to come in and um, tell us about what Christmas means to them, and uh, it's 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 an extravaganza of stars, really, isn't it? it yeah, yeah, and mates, and and bodies, and people. Uh, so we'll uh, uh, that'll be the next one that we'll bring to you. So make sure you uh, keep your eyes open for that because it won't be the usual two week. Uh, wait, because then it would be after Christmas and it wouldn't be a Christmas extravaganza. So it will be coming out very, very soon. Uh, thanks again to our terrific uh, friends at Mercots. Don't forget, jump on the website, mercots.edu.au. Uh, grab a gift certificate, give it to someone you love, and they'll be there for a lot longer because they'll be able to drive well. Or give them a call on 1300 555 576. I think I say the number a hell of a lot better than you these days. I don't have any doubt about that. One three hundred triple five five seven six. Get on the phone. Do all your Christmas shopping in one go. You know it's reasonably priced, and really, if one of your friends has an accident, it might be you might be implicit because you didn't buy the Mercot's driver training. So, you know, if you can live with that, well, off you go. But I, I, I'd. <laughs> A one, three hundred, five, seven, six. I thought you were going to jump into and start doing Peterman on me. Frankly, Elaine, if you can live with that. <laughs> um, uh, look, we'll uh, we'll talk uh, for the Christmas show, so we won't wish everybody a Merry Christmas here. Make sure you listen no. to our Christmas show, and we'll wish you a Merry Christmas on that one. Uh, Brian, go and have a uh, – don't have a Sarah Pax. Go and have a, a, a Bex and have a lie down, and we'll talk to you for the Christmas show. All right, uh, we don't have to do any wrapping up over this afternoon. No, no, no. Or- We're all wrapped. We're wrapped and We're wrapped. wrapped. We're wrapped and ready to be presented now. We're wrapped like a Christmas <laughs> present. Exactly. Well, that's fantastic. Ho, all right, well, Ken. Ho. Ho. No, listen, don't talk about women like that. That is just a disgrace. <laughs> Brian, that- that's it. That might have been all right in the 60s, Ken, but not now. <laughs> uh, all, all right. right. See you soon. Oh, mate. Cheers, buddy. Keep on rocking, everybody. Seems I've got to have a change of scene Every night, have the strangest dream Prison by 
what you do 